we're back with the tech policy grind. I'm Rima Musa, and I'm a fellow with the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, the organization where the next generation of tech law and policy professionals convene to write, think, and talk about the web, technology, and disruptive innovation. This is the Tech Policy Grind, the Foundry's podcast where we chat about what's going on in the world of tech policy. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Tech Policy Grind. This week, Foundry fellow Caitlin Ringrose chatted with Coben Zweifel Keegan and Vinita Giglio on queer privacy and digital equity, with a spotlight on the work that LGBT Tech is doing to get LGBTQ plus resource centers across the US connected through broadband and technology grants. Caitlin is Google's global policy lead for law enforcement and government access, and has worked beside both Coben and Vinny, as well as other queer experts and advocates to raise funds for queer causes and bring more attention to tech policy issues impacting her community. Enjoy the episode. Thank you, Vinny and Coben, for being here with me today. For everyone listening, my name is Caitlin Ringrose, and I'm so happy to be chatting with my good friends about issues impacting them in their role as queer privacy pros and as they work to safeguard sexual orientation and gender identity data, as well as educate others about the importance of privacy protections. So with that, Vinny and Coben, both, can you tell me a little bit about your current roles? Coben, maybe you first. Sure, yeah. My name's Coben, as you said. I'm uh, the managing director for the DC office of the International Association of Privacy Professionals. And that just means I'm here in DC to be the eyes, ears, face, and voice of the privacy profession in DC. Um, tracking the policy conversation around privacy and AI governance um, and kind of uh, keeping up with the, the whole community. I, I see the role as uh, it involves a lot of community building and bringing people together. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Vinny DiGilio, pronouns he, him, and I'm a pro- privacy program manager here at Grindr. Um, on paper, I am helping make sure that Grindr is pursuing compliance with global privacy laws and data protection laws and regulations. Um, And that really just means I'm part of the conversation whenever the company is thinking about changing how we collect, use, share, or retain personal information for our users, for employees, uh, and any other data subject type. But from my standpoint, I actually get to do a little bit more, and it's something that I like to call internal data advocacy. And so there's only so much that the laws um, technically cover, and you get to a point where you have to analyze whether that proposed processing activity is something that's ethical or something that your intended audience is going to have a positive or negative reaction to. And so I'm very fortunate to be working for a small team because I'm easily plugged into any product or organizational changes when it comes to data processing, um, and it allows me to apply governance and weigh in where necessary. It's very much my dream job, and I'm so fortunate that I get to serve the queer community every day. That's amazing. I think we all have our own versions of our dream jobs, and it's just it's so fun to chat with both of you about yours. Um, I wanted to chat a little bit. You know, the title of today's episode is Queer Privacy. And for me, that term is very charged. It kind of reminds me of how little privacy historically we've had. Um, and how little we have now, but then also how important it is to be kind of fiercely out, be yourself, you know, bring attention to you and your relationships, if only to have visibility and to show that we exist and we deserve legal protections. 
that's just a, it's a really charge. It's really at tension with also the need for privacy. Um, so Coben, I want to hear from you about what that term means to you. Sure. And I, I appreciated your, uh, your own thoughts on that as well. Um, I, I, those resonate a lot with me. Um, I, I think we, we can't think about queer privacy without remembering that um, queerness is an identity that is not as visible as some other marginalized or my, minoritized uh, identities. Um, it's something that you may have outward expression of, uh, but is also something very deeply um, inside of us that is not, um, that requires a process of coming out. Um, and that means that queerness itself is very tied to the idea of, um, of, of privacy. We, we uh, all experienced uh, at some point in our lives, whether we're out or not, um, that sense of uh, that kind of urgent and visceral sense of, uh, of the need for privacy. We live in a world where it's still illegal to be LGBTQ in a lot of countries. Um, there's still a lot of uh, political uh, legislative activity in the United States, even um, that targets LGBTQ folks. So um, that uh, the recognition of that identity can be a dangerous thing sometimes. And so privacy, both in the online and offline space, is really important. That's really powerful. It's important to remember, of course, that in over 70 countries today, queer people and gender non-conforming people have had their um, have been subject to criminalization, have been pathologized, and continue to be persecuted for their identities on a daily basis. Vinny, both in and outside of your work at Grindr, in what ways have you seen the queer community use technologies maybe to gather, meet, socialize, date? How do you think that's unique amongst our peers? Great question. Um, so from my experience, a lot of queer people come to connect with others online because they're seeking community, something that may not be readily or physically accessible to them. Um, and I want to include this statistic because I think it's important. And I'm sorry, Caitlin, I'm totally stealing your thunder. This is from a future privacy forum report that you put out last year. The role of data protection in safeguarding sexual orientation and gender identity information and in the report, it specifically says that 80% of LGBTQ plus respondents participate in social networking um, compared to 58% of the general public. So this really supports the fact that queer people inhabit queer spaces online since they may geographically live in a place that doesn't make it easy for them to be out and proudly queer. So migrating to these digital spaces may be the only outlet that they have to find community. And I think that's really unique because I don't think a lot of other communities will prioritize online and digital spaces first when they're seeking that community aspect. Um, like if you're interested in um, different communities like that are surrounded by religion or sports, hobbies or some other activity where you have a similar life scenario, like you have kids around the same age. Most people look to join physical communities and meet in the physical world. Um, and I think that's somewhat true for queer people that live in metropolitan or urban areas. Like we have several queer spaces to choose from, but people, I think, in more rural and suburban areas, uh, and even folks that live in these more metropolitan populated areas, they use digital platforms like Grindr um, 
to be able to connect. Um, and obviously, I'm a little biased towards Grinder. I'm, I'm biased, but it's become this omnipresent brand and space for the community to connect, to find friendships, or to just have fun. Um, and I'm personally so grateful for it because it was actually a, an important milestone in my own life to, that led to my own coming out. And it's really a full circle moment to be able to work here. So I see this as a huge opportunity for the community to be served by online spaces. Like we have Grindr, it's a wonderful, prominent brand, but I also see, I also see this as a really big opportunity to continue to serve this community. And it would be great to see more pop up. I think we're just at the beginning of where companies start to offer more products and services that are catered towards this community. Because right now it's really around connection and creating queer joy and realizing that we're not alone, but we're going to start to see technology um, used in a way that it connects queer people to do things together, whether it's traveling or it's engaging in certain activities like sports. And honestly, it could even be helping you find health care to cater to the unique needs of the community. So I see a lot of opportunities. I love that. I won't join a sports team, but you know, I'll, <laughs> I'll admit I'll do whatever fun things folks want to do together. Um, you mentioned digital spaces as being a place for connection, joy, community. Have those kind of supplanted physical hangout spots and what are the harms and dangers associated with, with meeting in the digital sphere, how can companies like yours address or mitigate harm before it arises? So the first thing I'll say is I don't have statistic to talk about this, um, but it's something that I frequently talk about with my queer friends and queer colleagues, even at Grindr. We're seeing this migration away from these dedicated queer spaces, but I think there's a bunch of positive factors that are leading to this. Um, we're able to have these online queer communities like Grindr. And it's because the LGBTQ plus movement has made major strides over the last decade socially. We're becoming more accepted. So we're allowed to take up more space and we don't have to be limited to these physical queer spaces. Um, even just outside of the queer community, this world is becoming more digital, more connected. And that's also been really great for the movement due to representation and visibility things that I personally didn't have as much of when I was growing up, and I'm really happy to see today. And I think we're still seeing, to answer your second question, um, we still see similar problems in the physical space um, translating into the digital space, but I still think it's important to talk about how amazing technology is because it's accelerated the ability for queer people to find each other without having to travel to some designated queer venue. And I think at its core, the reason why queer people are using technology is still to meet up in real life. And that's the beauty of what people are doing even with Grindr. Yeah, I read um, the Human Rights Campaign put out a statistic that queer youth spend 45 minutes online more a day than their straight peers. And I thought, you know, I wonder how that translates to adults too. I'm sure we're, we're more online than anyone else. I feel like I'm always plugged in, but maybe that's just me. I think both of you too, what can people do to keep themselves safe online? Vinny, in particular for you, what do companies do to make sure that users stay safe, secure, and that their communications remain private? When we're talking about risks online, there's a couple of things I want to talk about. 
The first one, I think this one is so important. Um, and I don't think a lot of other companies really realize this, but having a digital footprint that is tied to queerness really introduces new risks of harm because data that can appear to be innocuous can actually be maliciously used to impact queer people. Um, and I'll just give a quick example and imagine someone is seeking gender affirming care if they're um, if they identify as transgender, non-binary, gender non-conforming. Um, and let's just say that their information is erroneously shared and whoever is, in, you know, maintains that data could potentially use it to harm that individual, whether it's blackmail or coercion. So you really have to think through your use cases and think above and beyond what the law requires and think about um, how information could potentially be used to, to harm the queer community. The other thing I want to talk about, um, and it's kind of how I approach queer privacy in general, and it's quoting one of my former colleagues, but the perspective is always, if you don't worry about your most vulnerable users, then you failed as a company or as an advocate in this space. So two particular communities that I want to highlight that are vulnerable is obviously LGBTQ plus youth, and then folks who live in jurisdictions where it's either socially dangerous or it's illegal to be out and proud. So first, focusing on LGBTQ plus youth, um, the caveat I'm going to make here is that Grindr is not, um, we don't have our services that are available to any individuals under 18. Um, this is mostly from a personal standpoint, but there's a really hot topic right now um, around children's online safety. And so I would obviously, I'm going to defer to Coven to talk about the status of all of those as he works in public policy and I do not. But the one thing that I want to highlight here is that, you know, these proposals can actually have a negative impact on LGBTQ plus youth. So one example is if you are requiring um, users to provide government identifiers um, to an online platform in order to use it, um, this again talks like references what I talked about earlier, which is creating this queer digital footprint and then having it tied to you in the real world. And I think this is a really critical time for queer youth to explore that part of their identity. And by doing that, it's limiting their opportunity to explore that um, within the safe confines of their home. Um, the other aspect around vulnerable communities is around um, LGBTQ plus people who live in those dangerous areas in the world, right? So in my experience, we have seen that even having queer oriented apps download to your phone can put you at risk or even revealing your face or identity in these queer online spaces. Um, so one thing that Grindr has done is we have created specific safety features um, to address those unique needs. And also we continue to educate our users that live in those jurisdictions um, and how they can keep themselves safe. Um, we've got a discrete app icon and we've got, you know, the holistic security guide, holistic security guide and uh, a bunch of help center articles that continue to educate our users, which we try to keep up to date. Um, the last thing I'll note is that um, although there are these um, 
there's risk to having this digital queer footprint and exploring these online queer spaces, it's actually um, really important to understand that these online spaces are the only place for these individuals in these dangerous parts of the world. Um, they are truly lifelines to the community where they can access other people and information to be supported in their own lives, um, especially when they don't have means to find that community or that support um, physically. So lots, lots of nuance there. I'm really happy you are chatting about policy measures impacting our youth too. Much of the legislation that you mentioned requires children and teens to grant their parents or guardians access to their communications. It also requires those same children or teens and their parents to give over their government identifiers to social media companies. It really operates on the assumption that queer children and teens have that inherent trust and that support within their household where, you know, we know that that's not always the case. And it also assumes that a government identifier reflects your your real name and your real gender. And we also know that that's not the case for queer youth. Um, so it's very important to bring up. I know there's a lot of good work being done in the community. One of the uh, leaders in that policy space is LGBT tech, and they'll be joining us at the end of this episode. Um, so I'll, I'll leave that issue to them. But Coben, in the meantime, you work so much on policy and you're, you're so deeply involved in the privacy universe right now. What can users do to keep themselves safe? What can companies do? And then I think, you know, best of all for you is what, what can legislators do? What should the rules of the road really be? Awesome. Yeah. And I'm, I'm always just so glad to be able to speak with Vinny, um, who serves on the front lines of these issues and kind of hear the takeaways from, uh, from companies like his that are trying to make a difference um, as they as they work to connect people, um, especially in those areas where people are more at risk. So um, yeah, I I can't I can't quite follow Vinny in terms of operational impact, um, but I do have a lot of thoughts on um, on particularly on the operational question that's in there. You've kind of presented the whole gamut of questions of what people could be thinking about um, on the on the side of companies. Um, one area that I work a lot in is emerging technologies, uh, whether that's AI or immersive tech like uh, extended reality. And um, I just like to remind people that these systems, these uh, online spaces are constructed. I, as a privacy lawyer, I often go back to Lawrence Lessig, who wrote about wrote that code is law, that digital um spaces, or one way I interpret that, which is slightly beyond where he left it, is that digital spaces are um, constructed by companies, that the design choices that we make as organizations um, dictate the rules of the road within um, online systems, within online communities. And that's a really important thing for people's individual development and engagement in the online systems, um, and in, and also in their in protecting their privacy and making sure that there's proper safeguards there uh, for them. And so as we're thinking about building entirely new worlds like the metaverse, um, we need to be thinking about how to do that in a responsible way that uh, makes it clear to people um, how their data is going to be used and um, how their identity, whether it's a, whether they have a single identity or, or multiple um, virtual identities, how that can translate uh, into from meat space to cyberspace. Um, on the point 
of individuals. I really think it is such a per- privacy for me is always so, such a personal issue. I think uh, it differs so much uh, based on personal um, uh, risk tolerance and personal uh, challenges and burdens, whether you're able to um, live with very little concern about digital privacy or whether you are um, thinking about ways to uh, consistently uh, protect your digital breadcrumb trail. Um, and I think, so it's great when companies uh, like Grinder are taking initiative to uh, educate users, because I think there's definitely always a shared responsibility there between users and the companies that serve them to uh, make sure that that there's the tools in place that they can use, but also that they know what those are and how to use them. Um, so continuing to do that and finding those those opportunities, whether it's whether you need to uh, learn how to use a VPN or uh, just know that there's a setting to change the uh, icon of the app, um, all of those kinds of things are uh, important in this community and and maybe more so than in other communities. But I think um, like that that's what I mean by it being very personal. Um, on the policy side, <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a lot of discussion um, uh, at the federal level about uh, comprehensive privacy law. Um, I don't generally wade into the normative questions like what exactly should we do to make uh, privacy real part of the benefit of having a robust profession, even without um, baseline privacy legislation, is that we are continuing to learn from each other and move the bar forward. But there's basically universal consensus that there should be um, some level of foundational privacy legislation in the U.S. It's just a question of getting that passed. Um, There's also, as you mentioned, a lot of concern around kids and teens. Um, One of the big one of the big themes recently has been that expansion from just thinking about kids under 13 to those in the teenage years. And that's really where um, the issue of queer privacy hits home for me. And part of kind of my own interest in privacy stems from um, my background in social psychology and my and my interest in, um, in identity and in identity formation in youth um, and the fact that uh, we do in the in as people growing up online, we um, engage in digital spaces in order to learn more about ourselves and our communities, and we may go we may experiment with different versions of ourselves, and we may not want a, uh, a permanent record of that following us around for our whole lives. Um, so I think those youth privacy protections are essential, um, but there is this big tension where uh, we see themes in especially state legislation where, uh, yeah, like you said, extending uh, the parental autonomy um, as a higher priority than, than teen autonomy um, and privacy. And so uh, those, those kinds of tensions are, are going to uh, continue to result in, in these kinds of policy conversations where we're not sure that they're really thinking about um, these ideas around queer youth that we're talking about. Thanks so much, Coben. Well, um, now we know the title of your next album. It's From Meat Space to Cyberspace. <laughs> like, um, well, I won't ask you if we're going to see a federal comprehensive consumer privacy law next year. I won't throw one of those kinds of questions to you. Uh, but I do want to ask, a lot of the federal drafts have had protections based on protected class, right, including sexual orientation and gender identity. Do you think that 
that's a very viable proposal? Do you think that uh, reliance on existing civil rights law is where privacy is leaning, or are we going to see something new? That's a great question. I think um, policymakers are continuing to experiment with a variety of ideas in that area. Um, one of the main things we see from regulators right now is a reminder that existing laws are out there, both anti-discrimination laws, consumer protection laws, and that those apply to new technologies like AI. The companies can't avoid existing protections just by saying, oh, we built a system and the system made the decision for us. Um, that's not a way of getting out outside of those protections. Um, there is a tension uh, that continues to build around uh, systems that can uh, make inferences that like AI systems or whatever we call them, things that are becoming increasingly powerful at combining disparate pieces of information and creating inferences out of that, that maybe have nothing to do with the original information. And that's, that's continuing to problematize our idea um, as privacy professionals, as policy people of uh, some of these categories that have been traditionally uh, thought of in, um, in privacy law. So things like personal information, sensitive personal information, it may be a little bit harder to draw clear distinctions between those things um, because uh, you may be able to infer sensitive information like someone's sexuality from non-sensitive information like their behavior online. Um, and so these kinds of, uh, that, that continues to kind of draw into question whether you can draw clear distinctions there. And there's also the concern um, there's also a tension between discrimination, anti-discrimination laws that require you to uh, know the protected classes involved and privacy protections that reduce, that are focused more on data minimization. Um, as a privacy person, my gut feeling is always, we shouldn't have that data, like let's limit the use, let's limit the collection and use of data. But sometimes when the goal is to measure bias or measure discriminatory impact, you actually have to have information about whether those protected classes are involved um, or else you won't be able to measure at all. And so um, that's one time when some of these other goals might come into conflict with privacy, but you're able to, but hopefully we're able to um, work through how to make that work in practice. Yeah, that's a great point. We do need data to conduct bias testing, but we also need to minimize and delete whenever possible to protect individuals from, from breach, from misuse, from downstream sharing, et cetera. Um, I, I think that's really helpful. I wanted to ask you too, I know you both read a lot. You're both very plugged in uh, in terms of giving out resources. Because this issue of queer privacy is so top of mind for you both, are you reading anything right now you'd recommend? Do you have any resources that maybe we should attach to this podcast episode? So I would say um, a lot of the materials, maybe it's not I'm reading right now, but I would encourage folks listening in. Um, Grindr has a lot of resources that touch on a bunch of different unique issues that impact the LGBTQ plus community. Um, whether it's some of the safety guides that I plugged earlier, the holistic security guide, or our very comprehensive um, uh, help center. Um, we just have lots of resources and reports uh, on uh, how we've approached these issues. Um, I know in COVID and I actually had a LinkedIn Live um, where we were talking about a similar topic to here today. 
um, and I plugged a, a gender um, study that we did, or maybe, maybe it's not the formal words, not study, but just being sure that as gender and language has evolved, we've done our due diligence to take a global view. Um, and that may be a helpful resource to people thinking about how they want to redefine how they collect or use gender information at their company. So um, definitely check us out. Um, we've got a lot of good stuff um, for people to use and consume. My answer for you will have to be characteristically wonky and, and, and something that may not be a mass appeal. But uh, if for people that are interested in, in thinking more deeply about policy solutions and just kind of the and I guess kind of a legal lens, um, at least from a tort context, um, I really highly recommend Privacy at the Margins by Professor Scott Skinner Thompson from University of Colorado Law. Um, his uh, analysis is just an, an he's he's very in depth on uh, thinking through uh, what privacy means for minoritized and marginalized communities, including uh, LGBTQ plus people, um, but uh, yeah, it, it doesn't. The book doesn't necessarily uh, end with a lot of legislative solutions, but it has some cool ideas in there, which is uh, worth worthwhile to kind of go really deep on, on this issue. Just a self shout out as well. I did co-write a report that Venny mentioned at the beginning of this cast called "The Role of Data Protection in Safeguarding Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity Information." It's a really big, long string of information, right? Sexual orientation, gender identity information. We call that SOGI data, just to kind of shorten it. Um, kind of understand that it is a class of sensitive data. And in that particular report, we explored the U.S.'s history of criminalizing queer and trans persons from America's earliest laws, which included bans against sodomy, to police raids of community spaces, bars and restaurants, to the Lavender Scare, where federal government employees were being fired on the basis of their orientation, all the way to today and these kinds of questions we're grappling with. Thank you both so much for joining. Just a shout out to that. I know we are all in a LinkedIn group called LGBTQ plus privacy and tech network that is public. It is open to people who are interested in privacy, who work on policy issues and who care about these same themes and ideas. Please do join. You are more than welcome. This is a very inclusive community. We want you here. We want to meet you and feel free, of course, to reach out to any of us. Vinny, Coben, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having us, Caitlin. Coben and Vinny, thank you for your continued focus on the needs of the queer community. While we're discussing tech policy issues that impact the queer community and our needs, I wanted to separately introduce one more expert, Carlos Gutierrez from LGBT Tech, who's going to tell us a little bit more about how digital equity folds into all conversations around privacy. So Carlos, can you introduce yourself and the mission of LGBT Tech? Sure. Thanks, Caitlin. And thanks, Coben and Vinny. That was a really interesting conversation. I'm really happy to be part of it. And thank you, Caitlin, for hosting this. My name is Carlos Gutierrez. I am the Deputy Director and General Counsel for LGBT Tech. 